A fault line emerges in the church. Critical race theory is a danger to the church and society. How should Christians speak on racial justice and reconciliation? All this and more in today's review. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Every month, I review a book from Faith Life's free book of the month. And while waiting for the free book for the month of June, I review a book of my choice. For today, make that three books. Today's review is inspired by my experience shopping for a microphone. The microphone reviewer would set up three mics side by side. Listening to them side by side gives us a perspective that a solo review would not. So today, in the same way, I'm going to review three books side by side so that you get a perspective that you would not get from a solo review. I chose the first book after I saw a meme of Vodi Baukum walking away from an explosion labelled Critical Race Theory. What caused that explosion? His book, Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe, released in April this year uh, at uh, 270 pages. In his book, Baukum cites James Lindsay, an atheist, Curious, I looked him up and discovered that Lindsay is a co-author together with Helen Pluckrose of the book Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender and Identity and Why This Harms Everybody. Now I have two books to review. After reading them, I figured that I have a good grip all right, on how critical race theory harms the church and everybody else. And wouldn't you know it, up comes a book on racial reconciliation. Ministers of Reconciliation, Preaching on Race and the Gospel is a collection of 13 essays edited by Daniel Darling. It was just published this month. I couldn't resist checking out how pastors would speak on racial justice and reconciliation. So this would be my third book to review. Will they employ woke language? So keep listening to find out. Now to the first book review. Fault Lines is a personal book written by Vodi Baukum. Personal because he shares much about himself and his dear friends. The first two chapters are titled A Black Man and A Black Christian. His father left him when he was young. He owes everything to his mother. She protected, sacrificed, advocated, and disciplined him. Once taking a shortcut home, a man shoved a gun in Baukum's face. Soon after that, young Baukum and, and his mother moved away. So you can see from his life that Baukum personally experienced the need for a father for good education and to run away from crime. He came out relatively well and he has advocated the tried and tested ways of uh, doing well, which is strong families and education and saying no to crime and saying no to victimhood. So it's also a personal book because he speaks of his dear friends. He charges that some of his friends, highly influential Christian leaders, are turning to wokeism, to the critical theory. He quotes them. 
And while those quotations do uh, look bad in, in terms of, uh, of this uh, critical theory, I wouldn't call this um, as proof. There is a difference when John Piper says, my God, and when Richard Dawkins says, my God. Uh, one is a believer, the other is speaking the language of a culture. But why does Balcom name names? I quote from the book, My goal is not to destroy, but to expose, warn, and correct, in hopes that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And yes, I do mean to call these uh, ideologies demonic. End quote. One of the most useful uh, parts of this uh, book is chapters 4, 5, and 6, where he describes critical race theory as a new religion. This religion's understanding of the universe is critical race theory or intersectionality. Original sin is racism. The law is anti-racism. The gospel is racial reconciliation. Instead of Levites as priests, it has oppressed minorities. The way to atone is through reparations. The way to be born again is to be woke. He writes, I quote, I quote, In case you're wondering about its soteriology, there isn't one. Anti-racism offers no salvation, only perpetual penance in an effort to battle an incurable disease. End quote. In the book, Balcom brings up what happened with the Dallas Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel, as well as the Southern Baptist Convention's Resolution 9 on Critical Race Theory. He cites these incidences as evidence of the fault line, and the documents, the Dallas Statement and the Resolution 9, are both in the appendices of this book. Now, there is an important footnote related to the SBC that you might miss, which I quote, as this book was on its way to press, the Council of Seminary Presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention released a statement on November 30th, 2020 that is nothing short of a complete repudi repudiation of CRT, uh, Critical Race Theory, as well as Resolution 9. While the organization condemns racism in any form, the seminaries agree that, and this is the important part, the seminaries agree that affirmation of critical race theory, intersectionality, and any version of critical theory is incompatible. It's incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. End quote. So he says here that this, was, this, footnote, was this footnote was included as this book was on its way to press. And this um, change, this sudden change shows that there is an ongoing developing issue in the SBC. So if you're bewildered by how everyone has gone woke, this uh, book helps to orientate the disoriented disoriented, and assures you that you are of sound mind. Balcom clearly explains how and why critical theory is a threat to the church. The next book I'm reviewing explains how and why criti criti critical theory <laughs> is a threat to everybody else. It's not just a church squabble. Critical theory is an exis existential threat to all of society. Speaking of threats... Sometimes I tell people that doctrine, some doctrine is a potential threat to the church. And sometimes people would tell me that I'm overreacting. 
debates on doctrines like the Trinity or Incarnation is limited to the academics. Uh, these debates stay in the seminaries and has no relevance or impact to evangelism, missions or the everyday Christian life. Sadly, history and current events shows that what happens in universities or seminaries do not always stay there. In this book, Cynical Theories, uh, how scholarship activism, uh, how activist scholarship, sorry, how activist scholarship made everything about race, gender, and identity, and why this harms everybody, by Helen Plattrose and James Lindsay. Uh, this book was published in August last year, and in chapter one of this book, we read that postmodernism, postmodernism, was limited to political theorists, philosophers, and artists, and they say that there is no objective truth. Everything is meaningless. It's all doom and gloom. If postmodernism stayed limited to those few, all would be well. But it did not. It jumped out. In chapter 2, the authors write, I quote, We therefore might think of postmodernism as a kind of fast-evolving virus. Its original and purest form was unsustainable. It tore its host apart and destroyed itself. It could not spread from the academy to the general population because it was so difficult to grasp and so seemingly removed from social realities. In its evolved form, it spread, leaping the species gap from academics to activists to everyday people as it became increasingly graspable and actionable and therefore more contagious, end quote. The most helpful part of the book is the two postmodern principles and uh, four, to a lesser extent, the four key themes. And uh, Plutrose and Lindsay introduced the two postmodern principles in the first chapter and in the second chapter, show how um, postmodernism evolved and is now applied. In, the, in five chapters, the next five chapters, we read how it's applied in post-colonial theory, queer theory, critical race theory, and intersectionality. Uh, chapter six is feminisms and gender studies. And chapter seven is disability and fat studies. So how can we understand these uh, postmodern principles? I will explain using fat studies because I think this can still shock people. It's scary how what used to be shocking is now normal. Science is oppressive. Gender is fluid. Only whites can be racist. I think, or I hope, people can still be shocked by what critical theory says about obesity. But what is shocking today can be normal tomorrow. That's how this virus spreads. The first principle, okay, is the postmodern knowledge principle. It is, I quote, radical skepticism about whether objective knowledge or truth is obtainable. And it is a commitment to cultural constructivism. All right, what does this mean? You have heard it said that obesity is unhealthy according to science. But according to postmodern knowledge principle, science is not value neutral and there is no objective truth. If there is no objective truth, then being fat, saying fat is bad or obesity is unhealthy is not 
necessarily true. It is just what science says. But there are other voices that are equally true that says obesity can be healthy. Yeesh. The second principle is the postmodern political principle. The previous one was knowledge principle. The next one is political principle. And it is, I quote, a belief that society is formed of systems of power and hierarchies which decide what can be known and how. You have heard it said that obesity is unhealthy. And you heard it because that's what the systems of powers and hierarchies want you to hear. They oppress fat people. They discriminate against fat people. Fat is bad, not because it's unhealthy, but because thin people don't like fat people. The solution is not diet and exercise. The solution is to change society's hatred for fat people. Yeah, can you follow? That is the postmodern political principle. In summary, uh, the two postmodern principles are number one, there is no truth. Number two, truth is decided by the powers that be. Isn't this scary? It's been said before and it's worth saying again. We are living in George Orwell's 1984. If you haven't read that novel, you should go and grab it. You will see scary similarities between today and that book. Now, Cynical Theories, the book, okay, Cynical Theories is the title of the book, describes four major themes in postmodernism. Namely, number one, the blurring of boundaries. Number two, the power of language. Number three, the, power, the cultural relativism. Number four, the loss of the individual and the universal. And just like the two principles of a knowledge principle and political principle, uh, these themes help us detect the smell of critical theory in other fields. Let me describe one of those themes, which is the loss of the individual. In chapter 5 on critical race theory and intersectionality, the authors Plutrose and Lindsay write, There is nothing complex about the overarching idea of intersectionality or the theories upon which it is built. Nothing could be simpler. It does the same thing over and over again. Look for the power imbalances, bigotry and biases that it assumes must be present and pick at them. It reduces everything to one single variable, one single topic of conversation, one single focus and interpretation. Prejudice, as understood under the power dynamics asserted by theory. Again, what does intersectionality look for? Prejudice. We don't check whether prejudice exists. We just need to find out where it exists. It's kind of like you don't check whether your husband or wife is having an affair. You assume it's true and you filter everything he or she does, no matter how innocent it may be, under the assumption of guilt. You are guilty. I just need to find out how you are guilty. And everybody is supposed to think that way. Okay, This is the loss of the individual. 
Like Rose and Lindsay write, even if a person were a unique mix of marginalized identities, thus intersectionality, a unique individual, she would be understood through each and all of those group identities. With the details to be filled in by theory, she would not be understood as an individual. End quote. What it's saying here is that if you are a black lesbian, you are supposed to think like a black person, like a woman person, and like a homosexual person, a group, okay? So you're thinking in three groups. These three identities intersect, but you're supposed to think like everybody else in those three groups. You're not supposed to think as an individual, because if you say you're black and you say that, uh, I don't know, you don't believe that whites are racist, uh, then you are not following the group identity, all right? Vody Baucom describes it, this thing as ethnic Gnosticism. Ethnic Gnosticism, where all blacks think alike. If you don't think alike, you are broken. You are not black or not black enough. So when we look at Fault Lines and the book Cynical Theories, uh, both books are helpful in describing critical theory and its danger. Uh, Balcom uh, to explain for the church, Pluck Rose and Lindsay for society in general. Now, both books rise the alarm by presenting case studies and evidence so that the reader goes, as he reads, aha, so this explains what I'm seeing in the newspaper. Or, does anybody read newspaper? Reading in the news and seeing on YouTube and, and listening to all these uh, politicians and professors. I finally understand what is going on in the world. So that is useful. However, there are crucial differences between the two books. Fault Lines is easier to read. Yes, it's a shorter book. Uh, plenty of stories and is relatable. Cynical Theories is harder to read. You can get lost in the technical names, history, and connections. It's written for a popular audience. It's not scholarly, but because critical race theory is so alien, it sometimes feels very surreal. You don't really understand how did these people can come to think in that way. All right. Now, more importantly, a more important difference is this. Fault Lines is written by a Christian arguing for the gospel. Cynical Theories is written by atheists arguing for liberalism. The, the Plutrose and Lindsay's saviour is liberalism. Balcom's saviour is Jesus Christ. His solution to racism is the gospel, which leads us to our third book. Our third book is Ministers of Reconciliation, Preaching on Race and the Gospel. It is a collection of 13 essays edited by Daniel Darling. Russell Moore uh, wrote the foreword and he writes, This book includes reflections from many who have taught and preached on these matters. And these essays may well spark within you ideas for how to stand for Christ on these issues in your church or family or community. End quote. Now, this matters, what he's referring to is racial justice and reconciliation. So, remind you how I came to this book. After reading Fault Lines and Cynical Theories, the idea is uh, to see whether um, this book that just got released, whether these uh, 13 essays on racial justice and reconciliation, do they refer to critical theory? Now, I want to strongly emphasize here, 
Whatever we read in these essays does not prove or disprove the author's position on critical race theory. Uh, these writers were not writing about that topic, about critical theory. And so they, they may have a nuanced position, okay, which is not communicated in their essay. Okay, let us understand that. And importantly, these are Christian pastors writing on racial justice and reconciliation for Christians in these difficult times. I, I think it's important for me to emphasize this because I don't want people to think that uh, I encourage a woke hunt. You know, you're just looking for things that is woke. I just want to demonstrate with this book how understanding critical race theory can be helpful in, uh, in reading and, uh, and listening to what other people say. Now, to understand how this book, Ministers of Reconciliation, is structured, uh, try to imagine this. You step into an elevator. The other guy in the elevator is a world-famous professor on Christian ethics. You ask him about racial justice and reconciliation. He only has 60 seconds to answer you on such a complex and inflammatory topic, okay? And what can he say? He could say this, uh, you should read Genesis 1.27, created in the image of God. Psalms 139 on the God who sees, Jeremiah 38, uh, 39, the African who rescued Jeremiah. Uh, you should also read, the, go and make disciples of every nation in the Great Commission and uh, pick up on the racial themes between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, between Peter and Cornelius, and between the Jews and Gentiles in Romans 15. And after you've done that, you can also study the body of Christ in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5.19. And uh, keep an eye on Paul speaking on Peter's hypocrisy in Galatians and Jesus breaking the, the dividing wall in Ephesians 2.11-18 and also the chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation and people of God's possession in 1 Peter 2.9. And lastly, lastly, and Revelation 5, 9 to 10, which says, By your blood, whose blood? Jesus' blood. You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Uh, read all of that and you will have a good idea of what the Bible says on racial justice and reconciliation. Within 60 seconds, the elevator door opens and this professor walks out and you are left with 13 rich and meaningful Bible passages to read and savor. And if you want to hear 13 different pastors expound on these 13 Bible passages, you get this book, Ministers of Reconciliation. Now, this is a side-by-side -side book review. So I will pick up on two examples from this book. One example hints at woke language, while the other decisively does not. Okay, So that's the side-by-side -side review. Now, in the book's first essay, uh, Matthew D. Kim gives a definition of racism from Scott B. Ray and Jamar Tisby. And as I read, as you listen, uh, see whether you hear anything woke. He writes, Racial prejudice has been defined by Scott B. Ray as negative stereotyping on the basis of race and or belief that particular races' ethnicities are inferior to others. Racism is the combination of racial prejudice and the institutions of power in any given culture that enable a group to perpetuate patterns of discrimination. And there's an ellipse here. 
which means he removed a sentence. And I'll pick up on this later on. So as I continue on. However, no one's race exempts them from holding immoral racial prejudices. Similarly, in the color of compromise, Jamatis B writes, racism can operate through impersonal systems and not simply through the malicious words and actions of individuals. Another definition explains racism as prejudice plus power. It is not only personal bigotry towards someone of a different race that constitutes racism, rather racism includes the imposition of bigoted ideas on groups of people, end quote. This is the outline of what I just read. Ray defines racism. Kim says, similarly, look at this. Tisby defines racism. So you have two definitions, which Kim says, similarly. Now, after reading fault lines and cynical theories, I have become woke on woke. First, there are two important sentences missing from Ray's definition. I checked uh, um, Ray's uh, textbook on uh, Christian uh, moral choices, uh, the textbook on uh, Christian ethics. Uh, which is where this uh, Kim has cited it from. Now, when Ray defined racism, his definition begins like this. It is helpful to distinguish between racism and racial prejudice, since they are two somewhat different things. Okay, So there is a distinction between racism and racial prejudice. And you remember the ellipse? Now, the sentence that was removed reads like this. This distinction is part of the reason why some groups insist that minorities cannot be racist since they don't have the power necessary to enforce racial preferences. And then Ray contrasts, however, no one's race exempts them from holding immoral racial prejudices. End quote. Now, did you miss that? Let me just repeat and Ray writes, okay? So this is uh, Scott B. Ray's definition. Some groups insist that minorities cannot be racist. However, see where the contrast kicks in? However, no one's race exempts them from holding immoral racial prejudices. Ray is saying minorities can be racist or hold immoral racial prejudices. Okay? So that is the direction of a race definition. Okay? Now, we compare race definition with Tisby's. Now, before I continue, Balcom is very critical of Tisby. So when Tisby's name showed up in this essay, I, I just read it again. Okay, just, uh, he mentions it quite a few times in his book. Tisby uh, says, another definition explains racism as prejudice plus power. Prejudice plus power? Hey, I read that in Cynical Theories. I checked and this is what Pluckrose and Lindsay writes. We are told that racism is prejudice plus power. Therefore, only white people can be racist. End quote. Because only white people, according to uh, Critical Theory, have power. They are the dominant culture. They are the majority group. So therefore, only white people can be racist. So according to Critical Theory, blacks don't have power, so they can't be racist. And therefore, you see that this definition is different. Uh, the missing sentence from Scott B. Ray is important for context. Ray says minorities can be racist or hold immoral racial prejudices. Jamar Tisby says no, because racism is prejudice plus power. No power, no racism. 
Notice here that the meaning of racism has changed. We all speak English, but some speak a different English. So when someone tells you, uh, asks you the question, uh, do you think racism is wrong? And you say, yes, racism is wrong. Do you want to uh, fix racism? If you see racism, do you want to solve it? And you say, yes, I would like to be a part of that. I don't want racism to happen. And then they say, all right, so uh, let's support um, uh, reparation. Let's go and be an activist. And you say, no, I don't want to be an activist. I don't want to, I'm not supporting reparations. And then they say, you are a racist because you are complicit in the activities of the dominant culture. You're not willing to speak against. So therefore, you are a racist. And you're like, what the heck just happened? Because the meaning of racism has changed. All right? The meaning of racism has changed. So when you agree to whatever critical theory says, you have to be very careful. Now, I am making much of this one paragraph in this one essay to reveal the bigger picture. Those who lean woke say similarly, but those who are against woke say in contrast. The former want to highlight how Christianity can coexist with critical race theory methods. The latter say any similarity is superficial and is far outweighed by the vast differences in worldview. Hear the argument. Baucom is not saying that those Christian leaders have left the Christian faith to knowingly adopt the new religion of critical theory. They don't say that. Baucom is not saying that. He is saying that they don't know that critical theory is a religion. They think that it can be a useful tool. So one says similarly, the other says in contrast. In contrast like night and day, like light and darkness, like God and another religion. You cannot worship both God and critical theory. People didn't know. So with his book, Baucom is saying, now you know, you have no excuse. If you are following my arguments so far, then you will immediately grasp the significance of the next example, the next essay from the book. In this essay written by Brian Loritz, it starts like this. On the evening, uh, I quote, on the evening of March 13th, uh, 2006, a group of Duke University lacrosse students paid two African-American women to strip for them at a party they were throwing. Five minutes into the festivities, one of the strippers abruptly quit and ultimately accused three of the men of rape. And uh, I skip to uh, one paragraph later. Uh, uh, Loritz writes, the DNA evidence didn't match any of the lacrosse players, and the woman who cried rape was ultimately revealed to have fabricated the whole thing. We had all, uh, we had all had been hoodwinked, bamboozled. Race can be quite the con artist, aiding and abetting our deepest presuppositions, seducing us to add or subtract value simply by the color of a person's skin. Try as we may. Race has attached itself not only to our skin, but to our minds, casting an ever-present shadow and coloring our perceptions. We just cannot seem to get rid of this demonic system predicated on appearances. And he continues, all right? End quote, he continues. 
Now, this is an attention-grabbing introduction. He writes so well, and parts of this uh, his experience, okay, he writes part of the experience, it just cuts to the heart. He writes, On cool mornings, I would throw my hoodie and venture outside. As I walk, it's common to see people who happen to be white go to the other side of the street to avoid me. Right or wrong, my assumption is that this is because... I am a large black man in a hoodie with his hands in his pockets and walking briskly. I find myself at times chuckling at the irony. While they are walking to the other side of the street, I'm reciting scripture and praying for things like the multi-ethnic church to become the new normal in our world. End quote. So you see, even though in the beginning of the essay, he says that uh, we... Uh, that racism, that charge of racism against the African women uh, was wrong, was found to be wrong. At the same time, he, he shows us that racism is alive and kicking in his world. And not only that. After explaining uh, further about how he experienced racism, Loritz confesses the sin of racism. I quote, A few years later, God called me to go on a predominantly white, wealthy church on the other side of town. I walked into that church like Jonah walked into Nineveh. People were helped by my preaching and many came to Christ, but my heart was bitter. End quote. So then the book talks about Acts chapter 10 and... Uh, I mean, this is not the book, the essay uh, about Acts chapter 10, and you see how this, uh, this uh, man of God uh, reflects on his sin of racism and thrusts himself upon the word of God. How does this sinner overcome his sin? Let me quote, As you know, our adversary has sought to make race a political or merely sociological issue. But when the preacher comes to texts such as ours and carefully excavates the ancient narrative in such a way as to show the congregation that the agenda is not being driven by CNN, Fox News or MSNBC, but by the heart and mouth of a holy God, we now position them to deal with God. This truth should give us both courage and great sleep at night expository preaching, letting the text set the agenda for the message is the preacher's best friend, especially when dealing with inflammatory topics such as racism, end quote. Bravo, bravo. I mean, even his essay is something that you can preach from. You see the conviction of the gospel, of the power of the gospel to cure and heal and restore the sinner's heart, the racist heart. Uh, this is just wonderful. Now, in the final analysis, I don't know where any of these writers on this book, The Ministers of Reconciliation, I don't know where they stand on critical race theory. This book was not designed to be read after fault lines and cynical theories. And this book is not a sample given to students or readers to sniff for woke teachings. I don't want anyone to get that impression. This book stands by itself, okay? So it's not part of... Um, Fault Lines, or other books on critical race theory. It is a book that aims to heal and recover a biblical vision of racial justice and reconciliation. Uh, Matthew D. Kim had far, far more to say on Genesis than, uh, than citing Ray and Tisby's definition of justice. Lawrence had far, far more to say on Acts than his experience of racism. Every essay in this book is an exposition of a Bible passage, but I don't elaborate on them because I'm reviewing the book side by side with fault lines and cynical theories. But I do want to remind everybody that you have 13 pastors here writing from their heart on what breaks their heart. 
namely racial injustice. And the only thing that can heal that heart is Jesus Christ. My biggest takeaway from this book is you can speak powerfully on racial justice and reconciliation without using woke language. If you say power, privilege, white supremacy, you have to define those words because the meaning has been muddied by critical race theory. People in the pews, they don't know what you're talking about because they may agree but don't not realize what they're agreeing on. So, try, so some try, okay? So I believe some try to use woke language as a bridge to scripture, thinking that if I speak your woke language, I am successfully contextualizing the message so that you can hear God speaking through his word. Okay, that's the idea. And I don't think it works. I fear that eventually, if you go down this road, eventually scripture will be used as a bridge to wokeness. Scripture will be used as a bridge to critical theory. Because in trying to package scripture to appeal or appease the woke crowd, you will sacrifice truth. Now remember critical theory's two principles. Number one, there is no truth. Number two, truth is what the powers that be say it is. If pastors normalize woke language, the pew will eventually hear from outside the church, okay? Because you speak woke language here, they go outside, they also hear woke language. But outside the church, they will hear that there is no truth. And they will come eventually to the conclusion that you are saying what you are saying because you as the Christian group, the dominant group in the culture, want power over me. They will interpret every interaction in terms of power and privilege because that is what you've been telling them from the pulpit, power and privilege. So don't do that. Don't use woke language. My final thoughts after reading the book. Guys, brothers and sisters, fellow believers, racism was around long before America was founded. <laughs> Intergenerational racism is not unique to America. It's everywhere. Name me a country with no racist. England? <laughs> France? Turkey? Iran? China? Japan? Malaysia? I don't know. Name me a country. Zambia? Nigeria? Cuba? Name me any one country where there are no racists. I believe racism is everywhere because sinners are everywhere. Sin is in every person's heart. When you limit the racial conversation to whiteness, white supremacy, and white fragility, what you do is that you take away the gospel's universal power to identify and kill the sin of racism. Now, what if an Israeli family and a Palestinian family have managed to somehow want to reconcile? Imagine this, an Israeli and a Palestinian. And they come to you, Christian, because they have heard of the power of Jesus to reconcile Jews and Gentiles, to remove the dividing wall, to enable hate-filled people to love and forgive all sins. What will you say? Are you going to say dominant culture, systemic racism, uh, uh, give me a list of the people killed in the past and, and the solution for proper reconciliation is reparations? 
No, don't, haven't you read the story of Corrie Ten Boom and the Ravensbrook uh, guard? She could not forgive him. Read the story of Corrie Ten Boom. She obeyed God, she knew what Jesus said, and she chose to forgive, and the Holy Spirit filled her. Holy Spirit work is what we want to see between Israel and Palestine, between blacks and whites, between husbands and wives, between brothers and sisters. That's what we want to see, not critical race theory. And that's what the best of fault line and ministers of reconciliation has to offer. God. In contrast, cynical theories, the book Cynical Theories, solution is liberalism. But fault line and ministers of reconciliation written by Christian authors, Christian pastors, they are offering God as a solution. And in this side-by-side review, we see that fault line and cynical theories, okay, these two books, describe the danger of critical theory so that we can see the danger to the church and to society. After reading these two books, we can detect wokeness, okay? This uh, critical theory in what we read and hear. The best of Ministers of Reconciliation and Fault Lines, these two books, shows that the way forward is to speak loudly and clearly that what the world needs is not a better philosophy or sociology or political activism. What the world needs is God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Only through God can we see an end to the sin of racism once and for all. The problem is men reject God's solution. And reading all these three books, okay, reading these three books just shows us ever more clearly what is the right path ahead of us. This is a reading and readers side-by-side review of Fault Lines by Vodi Balcom, Cynical Theories by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, and Ministers of Reconciliation, a collection of 13 essays edited by Daniel Darling. How did you like the side-by-side review? Did you find it helpful or not? Let me know your thoughts. I would also like to request that you write a review. This is the ninth episode. Uh, It's early days for this podcast and your reviews help to keep the fire in me going. Now, you don't have to do it via a podcast player. You can just go to the website and submit the review in the contact form or email me direct. The website address is www.readingandreaders.com. That's www.readingandreaders.com. Please send me your review. Thank you for listening to Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. God bless.